Hello and welcome to the programme. You can visit the website anytime you like, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. I'm noticing an awful lot lately, I have to say. I'm noticing stuff that isn't there. Are you with me? Do you know what I'm talking about? Have you gone into your back garden recently? Have you walked in the park? Have you walked alongside the river? Have you noticed the lack of birds? Because at this time of year going into the autumn, this is when some creatures take a little break. Birds are molting now. We discussed it on the programme last week and they're vulnerable when they're molting to predators so they kind of keep a low profile. There's also lots of berries out in the bushes so you don't see them around your garden feeding and because the breeding season is over you're not hearing anybody sing. It's gone quiet. It's oh so quiet. It's oh so still. Very quiet indeed in the lives of our garden birds but what about other birds oh it's a busy time for some is it not Niall Hatch here with me in studio Absolutely, Derek. That's right. Uh, it's actually a very, very busy time indeed for some of our birds, which are about to undertake the most important and longest migration of their lives. And mm. um, this is when birds are on the move, you see. So we do have our garden birds, many of which are resident. They do stay with us. They have the luxury of being able to keep that low profile, to allow time for the, the feathers to regrow, to get back into better condition before the onset of winter. We've already felt the weather change a bit in recent times. It was very warm and now all of a sudden we feel that oh, chill in the air. So that's why the birds have to replace their feathers. It's also why those birds that have to leave us because of dietary reasons, because the food that they eat, if mainly small insects, if that's affected by the cold weather, they have no choice but to leave us and head to places like sub-Saharan Africa. So birds like, like swallows and house martens, willow warblers, young cuckoos, birds like that are all at the moment now fattening up, putting on as much weight and getting as much nutrition as they can so they can then head off south and head across the Mediterranean, um, across the Atlas Mountains, across the Sahara Desert and to get down to sub-Saharan Africa. It really is mind-blowing when you think about it. So they're the ones that are leaving. What about the ones that are arriving? Well, that's the other side of it because Ireland is really at the moment it's a bit like uh, a big terminal in an airport there's all sorts of arrivals and departures and this is the time of year too when we start to see our first winter migrants arriving so although winter isn't with us yet to, to beat the bad weather in places like the Arctic where so many of our, our birds will nest and spend the winter here so let's see birds like ducks geese swans waders particularly mm-hmm. they're the ones that migrate to Ireland in huge numbers and we actually have far more birds in Ireland in the winter than we do in the summer people often ask me well I thought, I thought the birds moved you know, south to warmer places for, to spend the winter forgetting of course that for a lot of those birds we are the warmer south and, yeah. <laughs> and, and Ireland is actually be, given our, our, our location on the globe and our, our latitude we should be a lot colder than we actually are that Gulf Stream keeps us quite temperate here mm. and we don't have the same sort of cold winters that they do uh, in other parts of continental Europe Aren't and we lucky? We are for the time being. We know climate change may, may upset that. Um, we are very lucky for the moment. And that's why the birds flock to us in the winter. So the birds that have to eat insects, um, particularly, most of those do tend to leave us because they do need properly warm weather. They want yep. to avoid winter completely. Uh, whereas uh, the birds then that are, just need to sort of feed on grass or to feed on uh, on some invertebrates in, that you find in the marine environment, things like that, talking your ducks, your geese, your waders and so on, they can come to Ireland safe in the knowledge that we're unlikely to have prolonged periods of frozen ground or frozen water. So even though we may have a few days of that during the winter, they will still have access to unfrozen water, unfrozen mud, which means that they can feed on the food that they need and then return back to the Arctic to breed again the following spring. Sitting beside Niall Hatch in the studio tonight, we've got Ken Whelan, our fisheries scientist. Ken, is it a busy time for fish? 
Yes, it's a very busy time for fish because uh, very much like uh, the birds, this is the busy period when the fish are beginning to mature, certainly the salmon and the trout. They're beginning to think about love and they're beginning to think about the autumn. So it's a great time. Beginning to think about love. Only beginning. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. It'll take them a while. They're very slow learners. Richard. Derek, yes. It is a very interesting time. I've been hearing... Wimbrel, now and again recently. Now, Wimbrel are the so-called May birds, and when they are migrating in May, you hear the seven whistles. Beep, 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 beep. In the autumn, you don't hear it as much, but I believe I've heard it a few times, and I'm not imagining it. The first waders are coming back now, and they are migrating through Ireland at this stage, the Wimbrels are. That's right, Richard. The Wimbrel, a very interesting bird, a very close relative of the more familiar mm-hmm. curlew. Looks very much like it. It has a long, down, curved beak. They're not quite as long as that of the curlew. It also has a stronger head pattern. It's got this dark striping on the head that the curlew doesn't have. And while we have curlews in Ireland year-round, the Wimbrel is strictly a passage migrant. They come to us from places further north, like Iceland and maybe Scandinavia as well, just en route to places like Mauritania in West Africa. And uh, they stop off here to fuel in the spring and in the autumn. So, that's what we call so they're not even staying here? No, but we're still a very important part of their lives. So they're just transiting through for a refuelling stop. But if Ireland wasn't here and we didn't have that abundant food, that uh, whole species would be in difficulty. Now, Ken Whelan, you haven't been in studio for a while. Have you been travelling around the world or just staying local? Well, I haven't been doing that much travelling away from home, but I've been around Ireland a lot. And uh, I've been working a lot with communities around the country, uh, teaching them how to look after their rivers and their lakes. And uh, there certainly is a really solid take up now in terms of full communities really getting interested in basically looking after their own resources. And I think in the context of the challenges that we are facing, um, I think that's a really, really healthy sign. So that's keeping me very busy. But I'm still keeping my hand in on a bit of research with the Atlantic Salmon Trust and working a bit on salmon and sea trout and so on as well. Now, challenges like what? Well, in reality, the biggest challenge, obviously, that we're seeing all the time is warming water everywhere we look. And that's a big difficulty. And this summer in particular, we were just flattened by the marine heat wave. I mean, the idea that the seas off Donegal could go up by four degrees centigrade, that is just completely unprecedented. That's a delight for the visitors to the area, a delight for the surfers, for the paddlers, the swimmers. (laughs) They're all absolutely delighted, but they'll end up without any fish and chips if they're not careful. That's the big problem at the moment, is that we don't know the consequences of it. But the level of increase that's happening is really quite massive. As a result of that, just think what's happening in terms of the shifts we might be seeing in terms of currents. The shifts that we might be seeing indeed in terms of the plankton, in terms of the movements of fish. And these are areas that really we're only tiptoeing into now. We don't know enough about them. But I think we're mobilising a citizen army at the moment, certainly in freshwater and increasingly along our shorelines, who are actually going to be our eyes and ears. And I think the way of the future is definitely a really solid movement towards citizen science. And you can see that already happening. So you think the waters get warmer, the fish we have may not survive. But we get new fish in. We're going to be talking about sunfish a little bit later on and the increased sightings of sunfish around in the past few years presumably because the waters are getting warmer, more sunfish here. But does that mean all the fish that are normally here are scoppered off somewhere else where it's cooler? In general, what's happening is everything is moving north. So we're beginning to inherit fish that would have been in the Mediterranean. We're certainly beginning to inherit fish that would have been along the east coast of the state. So you're quite right in that, as with everything in life, even with global warming, even with climate change, 
that will bring some benefits, at least temporarily. So the warm water species will do very well. But the real risk is that our native fauna and flora, which very often is dependent on a temperate climate and in some instances even cooler than that, um, we'll see a very major shift. The whole ecosystem is upset when the temperatures rise, isn't it? It really is. It's, it's not just the fish feeling, no, it's no. a bit warm here, I better move. It's their food sources also affected. So will you talk me through that? Yeah, well, that's that's really, I think, the main concern. So um, there's some colleagues of mine in the Atlantic Salmon Trust doing some quite extraordinary work at the moment. And what they did was they started in the 1960s and they're looking at what we call zooplankton, which are the little animal plankton species that live off our coast. So if you think about the baby salmon that I talk about often on the programme, going out to sea in May, they actually have to find exactly the right food at the right time if they're going to survive. So if the plankton is changing at that time, there may be a mismatch between what they're looking for and what they find. And indeed, that's what our researchers have actually found. They found a situation where the total energy that's contained within the plankton at that time of the year is actually dropping and has dropped since the 1960s. So even though it might seem to a casual observer that there was plenty of plankton about, the overall energy component of that has dropped. And that's really significant, not just for salmon, which they're looking at, but for lots of other species as well. We may see a big increase in the Arctic as a result of some of the changes as the ice melts and so on, but it may be temporary. And again, we, we don't know. So that's why we're, we're unnerved really by this. And we really have to look at it in a much closer way. Last month, we broadcast our documentary about puffins and all of the experts that we spoke to in that programme were united in their belief that climate change, warming ocean temperatures were really a huge problem for the puffin and many other seabirds. It's really very much affecting the ability of them to feed their chicks because while the adults can, can follow their prey fish out to sea and the prey fish themselves are following the, uh, the, the plankton further north, this takes them out of range of the breeding colonies. So the adults are able to survive, but the uh, reproductive rate of the pairs dramatically drops and some mm-hmm. of the colonies in Iceland the, the young just aren't surviving same same thing in Norway uh, we, we don't seem to be following suit here in Ireland though the populations are dropping it is a worry we can tell a lot about what's happening by studying seabirds so with other species like terns for example we're seeing them now bringing back to their chicks more and more of these traditional warm weather species particularly a, a type of fish called a pipe fish we're seeing these being brought to, to young tern chicks the, the adult terns don't seem to realise that their chicks have problems swallowing these and we're actually getting chicks choking to death in the nest because their parents have given them unsuitable food. So it seems that something doesn't compute. The, the the adult birds are not necessarily able to adapt or to understand what's happening to the changing environment. And this could yet be another problem that's being caused for our seabirds on top of everything else. That, that observation, Niall, in relation to the, the changes in, in, in the food types, that's exactly, I think, the thread that researchers are now following. You might think a fish is a fish is a fish, but if you get something that's very thin, that hasn't got much protein in it, and you're suddenly in a situation where one part of your life cycle is totally dependent on actually feeding on one or two different species over quite a long length of time, and they are replaced by something else that's far less nutritious, that's a real risk and a really serious risk. Richard. The sea is a funny business. It's all one. There's only one sea. We like to think things geographically. Ireland is a nice unit. Britain is a nice unit. But the sea isn't. The sea is all one thing. 70% of the globe is all one 
republic, if you like, the sea. So the changes are within it. So it's a different sort of concept to us. We can't pick out species so easily because there's no geographical limit we can say, oh, in our area we have lots of skate or we have lots of this, that or the other. We can't do that because it's a transient sort of thing, floating. It's like the swifts. They're not living anywhere. They're in the air. The fish are in the sea and the sea is everywhere, more or less. So if you pollute the sea or pollute the air... Goodbye swifts, goodbye fish, or if you heat it up too much. But is there anything we can do about it at this stage? Let's be honest. What do you think, Ken? You've been around fish and the seas and the water all your life. Yeah, well, I think there's quite a lot we can do in terms of monitoring the changes. I think that's really important because we may be looking at not just impacts on fish, but we most certainly be looking at impacts on our society as well. And we need to be forewarned. And I think what we need to have then is we need to have the data that's actually going to tell us that these changes are taking place because the speed at which they're taking place now, conventional methods of research may not be sufficient to actually catch up on this. So that's why I think that if we can mobilise an army that will actually be trained to move into that space and to be able to monitor what's happening. I I think that anything that's man-made, anything that's on land, anything that's in fresh water, there's a real potential that we can do things to improve the situation. I think in terms of the oceans, the most important thing is to know about it and to be able to mitigate your management actions based on the information that you actually get from your work. And is this where a project like the Sea Monitor project is useful? Can you tell us a little bit about that? The Sea Monitor project was run by some colleagues of mine with uh, the the LOX agency, um, uh, which is a cross-border body based in Derry, running the show. And I went to the Roundup conference of the Sea Monitor project a few months ago, and I was absolutely and completely blown away by what they had succeeded in doing. So it was a combination of a whole range of different bodies. Uh, You had universities, you had state agencies, you had researchers from different groups. And the idea was to actually see, could they, in fact, monitor the ocean? They wanted to monitor the ocean by using the animals as the main link in, in terms of looking at the changes that we've just been speaking about. So they decided they would pick some really quite iconic species. So they were looking, for example, at basking sharks. They were looking at skate. Uh, They were looking at seals. They were looking at cetaceans and they were looking at salmon. And because of the interest that they had in the salmon and because a lot of my colleagues that are working on other projects with me on salmon were involved, we got more and more involved in Sea Monitor. And the more the project went on, the more linkages we actually saw in terms of the different programmes that were ongoing. And we ended up in a situation where we managed to amalgamate something like seven different groups for the very first time, looked in great detail at what was happening to these species um, around the west coast of Scotland, the north coast of Ireland and indeed the east coast of Ireland. It was one of these initiatives that we had never managed to accomplish before. It was quite unique in, in terms of its results. And what's happening to those iconic species? So with the basking sharks, what they were finding was that the um, basking sharks at times, they come together and they can actually come up to the surface and they can actually then gather together on the surface. And they have put together the most amazing program, a computer program that will actually let them predict 
when these gatherings may be happening. So, for example, in terms of ship traffic, in terms of recreational users, that they can keep clear then of these, of these particular areas. And the migration routes of some of the species, the, what they've unearthed was extraordinary. So there's one big species of fish here in Ireland called a skate. And when I was working in the west of Ireland, I got very interested in the skate in Clue Bay. And as far as I was concerned, they were common skate and that was it. But in fact, they were what we call flapper skate. And again, when they looked at them in detail and they put these electronic tags on the fish and they had this big array, this big receiver array running between Malinhead and the island of Isla in Scotland, they were able to then see that these fish were much more migratory than we had thought. And there was a big interplay between Scotland and the north of Ireland in terms of these skate. And probably the skate around Ireland are actually doing exactly the same thing. So in management terms, suddenly a creature that was looked on as sedentary, extremely long-lived, very slow-growing, was much more active and would really lend itself much better to active management. So all sorts of different results came from Sea Monitor and it was very exciting. And how could you actively manage a skate so the way you can actively manage a skate is by making sure that the areas where uh, the skate is subject to bycatch in particular, that people are aware exactly where the skate may be, the time of the year when they might be there and the gear that you're using to make sure you're not going to use the gear that will accidentally tangle up in the skate. Now, we're looking at a creature sometimes that could be maybe 100 kilos in weight. These are massive great creatures, but the juvenile stages are obviously a lot smaller than that. So they had put in all sorts of different mechanisms to try and protect them within the bays but they now need to be looking at sea and seeing how they can protect them at sea as well. Richard? Yes, skate and stingrays look very alike. Uh, For instance the stingray can sting you, it could in fact kill you if you were very unlucky as happened to one particular famous character but one is cartilaginous and the other is bony. Now they seem to an outsider like myself to be very similar so that I wouldn't touch one in case it was the wrong kind. Ken, why is the cartilaginous version so slow to develop and why does it have this very long life approach, whereas the other isn't? The ray that we have most commonly in Ireland are the thornbacks. And again, you have to be very careful because, as the name implies, they have thorns on their back and thorns on their tails as such. It's true, and a lot of uh, these cartilaginous fish are quite right. Some of them are indeed quite slow-growing and reproduce quite slowly as well. It's just an evolutionary factor over time. But people can get really uh, very confused by this, and there was a time when uh, there were some of the dogfish, there was a big fishery opened very quickly for some of these, and the fish almost disappeared because people hadn't done the basic biology, and they didn't realise how long they took to mature, and also how slow they were to grow and some of these fish would have been 15 15 years plus of age and they very quickly then had to cut down on the actual spur dog fishery as a result of that and I think it's the same they have to manage the rays and that very carefully as well. Why exactly the two different types of flatfish, if you like, have taken two different routes. Well, that's in the realms of, of genetics and past history but certainly as you say they are very different fish. Is the sunfish cartilaginous? I think the sunfish really is a mixture of both as far as I can remember. I think it has both uh, bone and then it has an outer skeleton, I think, that's actually made out of cartilage. So it has both bone and cartilage. And have you seen many of them in the wild yourself? Yeah, I've seen quite a lot because when I was working over the west of Ireland, I did a fair amount of sea fishing. And we used to encounter them on a fairly regular basis off Clare Island and around Clue Bay and up further north. 
and it wasn't at all unusual to either see them in the distance or have them rub up against the boat. When is the last time you saw one, Ken? Oh, it's 20 years ago now since I saw one. And would you be surprised if I told you that the numbers are increasing? The numbers of sightings, that is. I'm really delighted. Yes, I would, because so many stories are bad stories about the ocean at the moment. It'd be really fantastic to think that the sunfish numbers were increasing. But if it was increasing because the temperature was rising, that would be a bad thing, right? Well, I, I, uh, the one thing I do remember is there was, there was a chap, uh, Tom Doyle, Cork, and Tom was working on sunfish at one stage. I remember him telling me about them, their habit of feeding on jellyfish. Now, we're having a lot of reports at the moment of exotic jellyfish are beginning to appear and big, big numbers of jellyfish were some of the strands this year. People couldn't fish for days on end with jellyfish. So certainly there may very well be a connection between jellyfish and the increasing numbers of these sunfish. Well, let's find out. Now, some of you will remember our roving reporter Terry Flanagan's trip to the Natural History Museum a couple of weeks ago. There he met museum curator Paolo Viscardi to discuss one of their most curious exhibits, the almost otherworldly sunfish. This fish is as big as me. Yeah, a little bit bigger, if anything. Um, they, they're huge. They are huge. And they get to that size and you know, these big flat kind of disc-shaped bodies. And they, they're called sunfish partly because, you know, they are big and round, a bit like the sun, but also because they, they bask on their sides. Um, so they, because of the way they swim, with this kind of flapping motion, a bit like a bird, they'll often go just beneath the surface of the water and they look like um, the sun reflected in the water. This impressive specimen was collected in County Donegal before being sent to the famous Dublin taxidermist firm Williams and Son to be stuffed and made into the exhibit you can see in the museum today. But this is not the only place you might see sunfish in Ireland. Uh, one study shows that sightings of the enigmatic creature have greatly increased in recent decades as climate change has seen the range expand in the 1990s and 2000s by more than 200 kilometres north. The study's lead author, Dr Olga Lachevska, is formerly of the Atlantic Technological University in Galway and currently with the East Science Centre in the Netherlands. Hello, Olga. It's a long way from Galway to the Netherlands, they would say. Yeah, so I actually didn't study in Ireland. I came as a postdoc and I stayed for about seven years in Galway. So uh, I was based at uh, Marine and Freshwater Research Centre where I was helping my colleagues with uh, statistical and modelling problems of the marine data. So this is how I came to work with uh, sunfish data as a part of the, you know, one of the many projects I was leading there. Now, Ken mentioned there jellyfish, that the sunfish are perhaps following the jellyfish that come into our waters because the waters are warming up. What did you find? Uh, Okay, so we did look at uh, food availability uh, and... What we found out that jellyfish is increasing indeed, but spikes in jellyfish increase uh, happened later, like about 10 to 15 years later, uh, you know, after soundfish increase. We do know that soundfish uh, feed on jellyfish, but we didn't find that evidence, direct evidence, direct link that it is linked to food availability. I'm uh, very involved with looking at uh, the movements of salmon at sea. And we're very, very interested in some of the changes we're seeing in terms of the plankton, particularly around May, June time. So what are the other trends that you're seeing in terms of that food availability and in terms of the food species that the sunfish might might actually be favouring? So, yeah, so we also looked at uh, plankton, uh, like phytoplankton colour indices. So it basically tells us um, like how green is the water or how much uh, phytoplankton is in the water. And we did find uh, evidence that 
sunfish detection does correlate with availability of phytoplankton in the water. So it does uh, it, it suggest that there is some uh, relationship uh, in between, between sunfish uh, detection and uh, phytoplankton availability in the water. And in terms then of the actual migration of the fish themselves, I'm presuming at this stage I've seen a lot of sunfish in the wild, but I don't know a good deal about them. The implication is that in reality, they are not very active in terms of their movements. They're mainly dependent on the currents. So is it the currents that are bringing them towards us or is there an active moving component, if you like, to the increase that you might be seeing in terms of jellyfish? Yeah, we, 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 we don't have any data on currents, but we do have data on uh, sea, sea surface temperature. So what, what we did basically, we calculated, we, we know that sunfish uh, does like a particular range of temperature. According to literature, it can be varied, but we looked in particular at about 13 degrees isotherm. So basically, we calculated uh, the movement of isotherm um, in time for the same time period for this 50 years, nearly 50 years of data. And we noticed that um, temperature is shifting by about 200 kilometers. So, for example, where it used to be 13 degrees to 200, uh, like 50 years ago, it's now 200 kilometers further to the north. So, and we did find correlation, really strong evidence that sunfish detection does correlate with the annual mean position of the 13 degrees isotherm. So it's basically uh, what we are uh, suggesting is that sunfish does uh, prefer this kind of temperature and they move together with the temperature. So they're shifting. That's really interesting because um, we're seeing now that there are quite a number of warm water fish that are beginning to appear in very big numbers off the south coast of Ireland. So some of the mullet, the golden grey mullet and the thin lip mullet and particularly Mediterranean sea bream. And again, it ties in perfectly with what you're saying, that this shift in temperature is moving this whole, if you like, wall of biota is moving north, probably as a result, I presume, of climate change. Absolutely, like we 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 are not making those statements because it would be it would would mean we need more research uh, to be done. But it does have this kind of implications. Yes, so that there are uh, shifts in distribution of species, and uh, you can see it also with other, like you mentioned, but also other fish species which are, you know, also spiking and moving t- towards the north. So. Are those data still being collected? Because obviously, as I say, I have a real interest in this area and we're doing a lot of tracking where we're looking at the movements of various pelagic fish and those temperature trends would be really important to us. So those data are still being carefully followed and collected, I presume, in the context of the lives of the sunfish? Yeah, so uh, this data, uh, as, as far as I know, it is being collected. It is not collected specifically for sunfish. It is a part of a bird monitoring program. And other species, uh, are, like, like information on other species, are collected as well, like, for example, turtles and sharks. So they're part of it. There was a break in the time series. So uh, I think in 2013 and 15, uh, there was no one present uh, to collect data. But so there is like two years or three years gap. But as far as I know, um, you know, data is still being collected. Yes. Olga, it's Niall here. I know that uh, a lot of people find uh, fish quite difficult to identify. We don't see them that often. They're hard to get good views of. But the sunfish would be an exception because it's a very easy fish to identify. As you said, they're absolutely massive, like these big discs in the sea. There's something, when you see them up close, there's something also endearingly gormless looking about them, I think. this is almost comical. Uh, they also don't seem to be terribly manoeuvrable. They don't seem to be able to control themselves so much in the water. Are they themselves prey for a lot of other species or is there big size a defense mechanism there that helps them? 
as far as I know, big size is defense because it's the largest bony fish in the world. So I'm, I'm not aware of any, you know, other interactions with other species which are at a larger size, like, you know, sharks or anything like that. But as you said, they, they're easy to spot and they are, um, they, what, what, one of their behavior is just to bask in a, you know, in the surface. That's how people get to see them easily. You don't really need to be a trained uh, observer to, to, to spot them because, uh, because of their size and their, their behavior, they're quite, you know, if they're basking, they're just on the surface floating, basically. Olga, this is an intriguing fish, a most bizarre creature. If you were told about it and it was not known, you would dismiss the theory that such a fish exists entirely. Now, does this fish spend all its time basking, a lot of its time basking, or some of its time basking? Is it vertical to, uh, with respect to the water surface some of the time? Does it swim like a normal fish? Its eyes are on each side. The eyes are not all on one side as they would be with most flatfish. How does it live? Yeah, I do know that there are some studies which suggest, uh, like, they look specifically at some fish and how they behave, how they swim, and I know that they like to swim very much vertically, not horizontally like normal fish would do, but going from the surface up to the bottom. Why they do it? Well, again, I would I would suggest uh, you know one of the one, one way of explaining it would be they they could be you know chasing prey or for feeding behavior or something. But they yes, they very much uh, swim vertically. It seems odd that temperature should be important. Usually, very big things are well able to withstand fluctuations in temperature, either great drops in temperature or great rises in temperature. Look at the whales, for instance. The bigger a thing is Bergman's famous rule, the higher up in the latitude it can live. Now, surely the sunfish is not that worried about few degrees temperature either way. Why should that be so definitive in determining the limits of its range? Yeah, so uh, soundfish indeed they do prefer a range of temperature. Uh, from I, 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 like we, as I said, we did look at uh, 13 degrees, but some studies suggest, uh, you know, that it could be from 9 to 15 degrees range. So there is no no certain kind of you know knowledge of what exact range they uh, prefer. Um, so, you know, for the purpose of this study, we took uh, the mean uh, value of, you know, range preference as reported in the literature and just we tried to track it uh, to see if we could identify and explain uh, this behavior. And it, as it turned out, it, it, it came out quite uh, significant. So we are quite convinced that it is one of the driving factors uh, along with, um, you know, with, with uh, phytoplankton. And we're not too sure about jellyfish because it happens a little bit after. So we need to look into exact mechanism of, um, because it's not a direct link. It's, it can be, you know, influenced indirectly and all different indicators, they are obviously not independent. So that's quite, it makes it quite tricky to pinpoint exact mechanism. If you're as big as a sunfish is, it must be very hard to meet the fuel bill. You have to eat a hell of a lot to keep a thing as big as that going. The metabolism must be very expensive, shall we say. What is the advantage then of becoming as huge as that? If you want to catch crustaceans and jellyfish and ordinary fish, the last thing you want to be is enormous. You, you will alert whatever you're trying to catch to your presence anyway. What is going on here? That's a, that's a great question, and I would like to know answer to this question. <laughs> 
Certainly, Richard, if we think back to your point there, which is a very good one about the whales, if we think at the size of the whales, the baleen whales that actually feed in the plankton and grow to these enormous sizes, there's obviously a correlation between uh, creatures that feed at the bottom of the food chain, if you like, and have access to this enormous free supply of food and their huge growth. So I think maybe that's that may be the answer in the sense that if they're uh, floating along, and I think they largely do that, I think they're floating along, munching away on plankton, munching away then on jellyfish. There's every reason why they should become large because they're not actually actively hunting. Maybe that might be the answer to your question. But Ken, plankton increases with cold water. If you want to feed on plankton, move into the colder places. The oxygen levels are higher. There should be more plankton there. Why should a creature that likes plankton limit itself to 13 degrees centigrade or whatever the the threshold is now? It seems odd. There seems to be a contradiction in that. Again, we'd need to see the variety of food, I think, that they were feeding on. I mean, obviously, they have been feeding on their planktonic species for a long, long time in a zone that they're very comfortable in. I would presume that their food is probably much more complex than the two items we're speaking about. And the more than alga, I'm, I'm no expert on sunfish. But my guess would be that in the context of the warming oceans, there may very well be opportunities for them to perhaps find other creatures. What we are seeing on, in the salmon world, which I think is interesting because we're, we're looking at the planktonic changes, the zooplankton, not the actual phytoplankton that Olga mentioned, but the actual animal plankton. We're seeing that the changes may actually result in a situation where you have plankton that are perhaps larger than plankton that was there originally or plankton that may be more nutritious. They also may be less nutritious. But if they're more nutritious or if they're larger, there may also be huge amount of change happening and there's maybe subtleties within that that are actually favouring the sunfish. Bottom line is, Olga, that these huge sunfish are appearing more frequently in Irish waters. Absolutely, yeah. I've never seen one. Either way, Olga, thank you very much indeed. Thank you so much. and Thank you so much. Pleasure. I'm just looking at how long they can live. Up to 100 years, it's estimated in the wild. That's hard to believe, isn't it? Something could live for 100 years. Well, if you have that kind of strategy of just sort of drifting along and eating what comes your way and not expending too much energy, you know... You're I not, do! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wasn't pointing any fingers, but uh, but the fact is, yeah, that, that that's sort of a, a good a good strategy for living long. And especially if you get to that large size, you're not vulnerable to predators. And predation would be one of the, the, the leading causes of death for most marine creatures. If you manage to remove that from the equation, then you can live for quite a long time. Mm, what's the longest lived fish, Ken, that you've come across? I mean, um, you're dealing with salmon all the time. Have you yeah, got a long-lived salmon? salmon? Actually relatively short-lived. So, uh, I mean, a really ancient salmon where you had a, a smolt that was very slow growing, it might be five going to sea, might be at the most five years at sea. Ten would be absolute complete max. But I'm just thinking not as so much of fish as shellfish when you say that. I'm thinking of these beautiful pearl mussels that we have in Irish rivers. Some of them live for 120 years. Uh, you know, there are creatures out there that do that. What I was fascinated with, though, was the fact that Uh, Olga had no record that she could think of of these fish being attacked by sharks because just on the radio the other day I heard a report about guys that were in a catamaran I think that were attacked by sharks and I was watching a shark programme recently where the sharks suddenly took a fancy to the engine and the damage they could do to the boat was amazing You, you would imagine that this big floating creature they'd have a go at it so it'll be interesting to see whether or not we get any word back from our listeners in terms of any reports of sharks. Unless they're poisonous, 
Unless you know the way some birds won't go near those frogs in the rainforest. Perhaps so. The most brightly coloured frogs in the rainforest are the ones to avoid for a reason. Oh, they might be really horrible. They might be really horrible to eat. Mm. There's a little creature in our in our uh, freshwater here in Ireland. It looks like a spider where it's actually sitting on the top of the water. I have never in my life seen seen anything eat these particular little 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 watermen on the top of the surface. And I've no idea why they must taste really, really, really nasty. You know, that's probably a mechanism as well to make sure that you keep yourself safe. Now, moving on from Sunfish, Ken, we want to talk about the course that you are currently running in County Louth for people who live in County Louth on how to become a saltwater detective. <laughs> yeah, well, this is a great uh, this is a great programme that um, a colleague of mine, Kushla Drungul Regan and myself, um, we actually uh, put it together last year and we put a toe in the salt water to see whether or not people would be interested to learn more about their estuaries and about the seashore. And uh, thanks to the support from uh, the County Louth Development Group, uh, we got funded to put a pilot programme in place last year. And Kushla has for many years run the Explorers Programme in the Marine Institute. And that was where I first met her. And the Explorers Programme is introducing children to the delights of the seashore. So we decided to take the material that she had available to her and the bits and pieces I had on estuaries and to see could we get people interested in their local estuaries and in the near shore. And we were very fortunate in that we picked County Louth. And Niall was very helpful by putting me in contact with some of his friends from Birdwatch. So we got some bird component into our programme oh, as see. well. And that was really good because um, along this area, you have a unique set of estuaries. It's just extraordinary. You have something like, if I remember right, 40 or 50,000 birds can gather in these estuaries during the winter period. And the actual ecology of the seashores and the estuaries in County Louth is really quite extraordinary. So the programme last year was very successful. And thankfully, we've been asked now to run it for a second year. But now we're going to do something completely different. And that is? So the course is in County Louth. As I say, it's, but where? it's uh, in three locations. So we do a few classroom uh, events initially just to get people used to the theory. And then we're looking, first of all, at Carlingford. And I discovered Carlingford. I knew Carlingford. I'd fished in it and so on. But when I was researching my sea trout book about five or six years ago, I got the opportunity to actually spend some time along the shores of Carlingford Lock. It's absolutely an amazing place because it's full of all sorts of interesting uh, rock formations, all sorts of pools, all sorts of sandy bays, the most incredible amount of life. So we'll be looking certainly at Carlingford. We'll also be looking at Clotterhead. And people think of Clotterhead as a place where the uh, the place has landed and the cod has landed. But Clotterhead was, we found it really interesting last year. We did some beach walks. We found the remnants of porpoises. We found some remains of dolphins. We found all sorts of different nudibranchs. It was an extraordinary place. But the gem really for me last year then was Anagassan. So Anagassan is in the south part of County uh, Louth. And at Anagassan, you have the rivers Dee and Glyde coming together. And there's just the most fantastic sandy estuary that stretches for miles and miles and miles when the tide is out. And they're the three main locations where we'll centre the course. 
and the course started last week but people can still join if they wish the details are on our website rte.ie forward slash Mooney Ken thank you very much indeed now that rumbling sound you're hearing is the sound of a volcano erupting Understanding volcanic activity is key to understanding and protecting life on the Galapagos. For much of their history, the islands have been extremely isolated, thus becoming almost accidental and independent laboratories for the evolution of plant and animal life. Dr. Michael Stock is Assistant Professor in Geochemistry at the School of Natural Sciences in Trinity College, Dublin, where Enini Launa met with him recently. Now, the Galapagos weren't always there. They started off with volcanic activity. So could you give us a snapshot of, you know, first there were no Galapagos and then there were. I mean, presumably these volcanoes that you're talking about and will be talking about started the whole thing off in the first instance. Yeah, that's right. The Galapagos are like Iceland or Hawaii, what we, what we would call in geology, ocean island volcanoes. Uh, these things form through hot plumes of magma which are generated deep within the earth maybe close to the earth's core rising up and heating the earth's crust heating the base of the earth's crust and generating magma that rises up towards the surface you know about plate tectonics plates move across the surface of the earth uh, and as the plate moves across that plume of magma it generates a chain of islands so if you look at a map of hawaii you can see a nice chain of islands moving away from that plume of magma which we would call a, a, a hot spot and is it the same in the Galapagos? Is there a string of islands there now? And how old are they? Yeah, that's right. There are a string of islands in the Galapagos and they get older towards the east. In the east, they might be sort of a few tens of millions of years old. Uh, in the west of the Galapagos, the volcanoes are still extremely active, one of the most volcanically active places on Earth. Uh, and there would typically be an eruption in the western Galapagos every two to three years. So each island has different types of wildlife there because they were isolated from the next island and of course this is where Darwin, Charles Darwin in the 1800s observed all of the things that helped him to develop the theory of evolution. And you went off there to study volcanoes. Yeah that's right. The, the Galapagos Islands are probably around a thousand kilometres uh, west of the mainland Ecuador or mainland South America and the theory at the moment is that the islands existed, but of course they were volcanic. There wouldn't have been any animals there to begin with. Uh, there would have been periodic storms on the mainland, maybe in the mountains, uh, and they would have washed debris down the down the rivers, just like you see on TV today, where there are big storm events in, in, in the UK or Ireland or wherever. These rafts of, of, of vegetation would have floated out to sea, and you know, every now and again, we're talking over thousands or millions of years, every now and again there might be an animal, an iguana or a tortoise stuck onto, the, onto that material that made its way over to Galapagos and was able to settle there. Of course, uh, as you say, the, one of the striking things about Galapagos, one of the reasons that it's so famous is because the biodiversity is, is, is remarkable. There are, I don't know how many, 10, 10 to 20 major islands in Galapagos. Uh, and each one of those islands has its own unique uh, flora and fauna. Uh, of course, birds and fish might be able to fly or, or swim between the different islands, but that is more of a problem for the land animals. Once they got there, once they got to the island maybe closest to Ecuador, how did they get further away so that they could diversify and, and form, form different species? Uh, and one of the theories uh, is that there were land bridges, so the volcanoes are continuously erupting and continuously eroding, 
maybe in the past lava flows formed these links between the different islands, allowed uh, terrestrial species to move between the islands, and those land bridges have subsequently been destroyed so we don't see them now. And this is sort of a major area of active research and a crossover between biology and geology is trying to identify these land bridges and trying to link that with gen genetic diversification. So not only have we different species then on different islands, but there is a biome up each volcano. The volcanoes are really high. We saw them when we went to Costa Rica to do that programme a long time ago, Derek, way back. But the whole idea that we have at the base, it's really, really desert and hot. And as you go up to the different levels, to the different biomes, and right up at the top where you get the clouds, where you get the water, you have you have tropical jungle, and of course then different creatures in each. And was that the same on the volcano that you went to visit, Alcedo? Yeah, that's exactly right. And that was one of the most striking things for me. I'm, I'm a geologist, as you said, and not a biologist, and so I'm aware of these things, but I wouldn't have seen it from my own eyes. Uh, and when I was there, I, we were just completely blown away by change in the species and change in the environment between the bottom and the top of the volcano that we were working on. So we landed by the coast uh, and it was extremely hot into the thir you know, 30, 30 degrees or so uh, and very dry, very arid, just lots of low level shrubs and bushes um, and not very much in the way of, of wildlife. A few iguana, of course, by the sea. Where in fact, on the volcano we were working with, there were penguins and, and, and mad sea creatures. Uh, but on the land itself, very, very sort of uh, devoid of life. But we hiked up to the top of the volcano and, and we hiked through these different biomes as we were gaining an elevation. At the top of the many of the Galapagos volcanoes, but including the one that we were working on, you get a phenomenon which is called the garua, uh, which is a thick, dense layer of cloud that sits around the summit of, of the volcano and makes it extremely wet. You're in a, a sort of constant mist the whole time that you're, you're up there, uh, and that causes plants to form what is very much like a jungle, thick trees, uh, thick bushes and ferns, um, and very different wildlife. You were looking at the, the, the eruptions of this particular volcano. Surely an eruption is an eruption is an eruption. Up comes the stuff from, and comes down the side. And if you're in the way, you're burnt. If you're not, it cools down. But you, you were actually going to study a different sort of an eruption. How can there be two completely different types of eruptions with completely different impacts on the environment when they come out and cool down on it? Maybe you could tell us about this. And did you were you there for an eruption? No, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, we were not there for an eruption. But so volcanoes produce fundamentally two different types of eruption. Uh, you can think, I'm sure many of your many of your listeners will have seen eruptions in Hawaii uh, in the last few years. These produce lava flows, which are these kind of streams of molten rock which move down the side down the side of a volcano, typically at, at approximately a jogging speed. If you were if you were in the way of a lava flow, it might cause damage to, to property or crops or the environment, which is very important in Galapagos. But but you yourself could could jog away from it. The other type of eruptions that, that we see on Earth are, are explosive eruptions. And some of your older listeners might remember Mount St. Helens back in the 80s. And that would produce a large plume of ash and pumice uh, right into the atmosphere, which would be, which would be deposited downwind over, over tens of kilometres. Most of the Galapagos volcanoes and, and almost every eruption in Galapagos is, is the former type, the Hawaiian type of lava flow. 
uh, and that causes damage to, to the local environment, but not much further afield. The volcano that we were working on, Alcedo, has produced the second type of eruption as well in its geological history. It's produced those explosive eruptions which would deposit ash over a huge, uh, over, over a huge area of the volcano. I mean, we would go to Alcedo to study these exceptional explosive eruptions because sometimes the, the exception is, is the case that proves the rule. By studying the, the volcano which produces different eruptions, perhaps we can understand what causes the transition between these two different types. And the impacts are extremely different. So lava flows might cause you know, localized damage to some of the vegetation at the top of the volcano, maybe you know, a few kilometers down the flanks of volcanoes and occasionally close to the sea. If there were an explosive eruption on Alcedo volcano, it would cause much wider spread damage to, to the veg vegetation uh, and the indigenous flora and fauna. So what exactly were you doing? Were you collecting samples of rocks? Were you taking photographs of, of lava flows? What were you physically doing in a, from a geology point of view before we move on to the biology end of things? But what were you doing? Yeah, I mean, it sounds mad to a lot of people as uh, you know the type of fieldwork that we do as geologists, but we literally were camping on the volcano, hiking around every day into the big crater at the top of the volcano with a geological hammer, knocking off lumps of rock that we can bring back here to Trinity and analyse in the lab. You saw lots of tortoises, no doubt. That's where the giant tortoises are on that volcano, right where you were camping. Yeah, we saw a whole range of amazing indigenous species. Everywhere you look in Galapagos, there's some different uh, amazing animal, and that's, of course, why, why, why it's famous. But Alcedo Volcano, where we were camping, is particularly famous for having the, the highest density of giant tortoise anywhere in the world. Hiking around up there, camping up there, there were hundreds or thousands of these individuals and you just couldn't get away from them. Get out the tent in the morning and trip over a giant tortoise on your way to breakfast. And did you see any iguanas or anything like that up that height? So because of these different biomes, these different environments, there were no iguanas at the top of the volcano. We saw some evidence for them at the bottom. Uh, but in the other islands of Galapagos, of course, we had to take a boat to get here. So we were on a few different islands. You see land iguanas, which are, you know, maybe up to half a metre in size. And just walking around uh, the, some, of the, some of the settlements in Galapagos, you see marine iguanas everywhere. These big black lizards that jump into the sea and swim about. Which were the ones that had no melanin and were getting sunburned? Yeah, so that's another volcano in Galapagos. Next door, more or less, to uh, the Alcedo volcano that we were working on, there's a unique species of, of, uh, of iguana called the pink iguana. That, that species only lives on the top of this volcano within a couple of square kilometres. Uh, and it's undergone a, a bizarre biological evolution where it's evolved out the pigment in its skin and developed a high amount of melanoma. So the number of individuals of this iguana are very low. Uh, scientists have only found a couple of juveniles. Seems like it's a species on the brink of extinction. And this is a great place sort of to mention the importance of volcanology because these iguanas only live on the top of a volcano, only within a couple of square kilometers. And this volcano is very active. So any eruption could cause huge damage to, to, to the population. Now, we know from bitter experience that many islands have had their fauna destroyed because of invasive species. Has this happened on the Galapagos as well? Are there invasive species there brought by humans? Uh, very sadly, yes. 
historically humans have taken invasive species to Galapagos, either deliberately people in the past would have taken goats and things over, or, or by accident rats and things coming over on boats that just bring food. But the Galapagos National Park and, and some of the, the Charles Darwin Foundation and other institutions that work there are now working very hard on different ecological schemes to try and reduce the numbers of invasive species and protect the indigenous fauna. Uh, in Alcedo itself, one of the big problems in the past has been goats. Um, there were huge numbers of invasive goats on the, on the flanks of the volcano, which were eating, eating the bushes, eating the trees. And these are the same bushes and trees that the tortoise rely on. So back in the 90s, there was a big cull uh, by the Galapagos National Park to reduce uh, and eradicate uh, the invasive goats and recover the population of tortoise. So you, of course, were there as a, a bona fide scientist and got to do this camping and going to the part of the island nobody else can go. But ordinary people, ordinary people who are not scientists with loads of money that can go there, how much would ordinary people get to see or would they get to see any of this nowadays? Yeah, so the majority of the Galapagos Islands is a, pro a protected UNESCO World Heritage Site. However, there are four settlements in Galapagos which are within the park, but, but not, they don't have the same protected status. As a tourist, anybody travelling around South America can fly over to Galapagos and visit these settlements themselves. And there are a whole load of species that you would be able to see just in the town, the, the marine iguana, for example. You just have to get sprayed with insecticide as your plane lands on the main airport. After that, as a tourist, if you want to see the more exotic parts of the island, more of the indigenous species, you have to go on a, a boat tour. Uh, these take you around approved routes and you can get off in a few uh, approved sites with a certified guide. And that allows you, you know, tourists to see some of the amazing, uh, the amazing creatures that live there. What was the best thing you saw, whether it was rocks or wildlife or a rat in your water barrel? What was the thing that impressed you most? I mean, as a geologist, I feel like I should say the most impressive thing was the rocks. But in Galapagos, you just cannot escape the amazing biology. Uh, and I think the fav my favourite creature that I saw was probably the penguins. It's kind of mad to be on the equator uh, in a hot environment and see these little penguins swimming around in the water. I wish I were there. Talk about, you know, wish you were here. But anyway, thank you very much, Mike, for talking to me and painting such a wonderful picture of life on the Galapagos. Thank you, Aina. It was lovely to talk to you and get to share this experience with your listeners. Thank you, Mike and Aina. That's pretty much all we have time for. My thanks also to Niall Hatch, to Richard Collins and Ken Whelan. Our broadcast coordinator is Daniel Keating and our researcher is John Bella Riley. Don't forget to visit the website anytime you like, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. Until next time, goodbye, goodbye, goodbye.